Hello, and welcome to Stories of Scotland, Season 4. I'm Jenny, your just-a-bit-too-loud geology enthusiast. And I'm Annie, your gently-spoken archivist. <laughs> and yes, this is Season 4 of Stories of Scotland, where we will be continuing our journey into Scotland's past and looking at all things spooky, mysterious and mythological in our extended run-up to Halloween. Woo! Oh, sorry. Uh, woo! <laughs> Far too enthusiastic with that first woo. <laughs> ghost, ghost, not that happy. <laughs> oh, fine. <laughs> Season four, here we go. Woo! And in this episode, we are particularly ghostly, almost translucent, as we speak to the spectres of Elgin Cathedral. I'm almost translucent because I haven't seen the sun in four years. <laughs> Good old Highlands of Scotland. <laughs> but yes, Halloween or Samhain, my favourite season of the year. We are going to be taking a walk around Elgin Cathedral, one of the most stunning derelict sites in all of Scotland. At its biggest and best, this was the second largest cathedral in the entire country. However, while it's still fairly big, it is far from its best. That was a long time ago. And in this time, the cathedral was known endearingly as the Lantern of the North, the bright centre of Christianity for Northern Scotland until the Reformation in 1560, when things get a little bit complicated. <laughs> now, the original cruciform building was completed in 1248, Jenny. Oof, wow. That's even before my granddad was born. <laughs> And it was built on the fertile and flat lands of the beautiful Murray Coast. Now, these arable lands could support a large population, many of whom would worship in the grand new cathedral. Now, Alexander Burr, a former bishop of the cathedral in the 14th century, even proclaimed that his cathedral was... The ornament of the realm, the glory of the kingdom. Glorious indeed. However... While once mighty, the cathedral now lies in ruins. But I find this lovely quote describing the cathedral in the Elgin Courier. It's from 1851, but it thinks back to the glory days. The portions of Elgin Cathedral stand out in all the naked solemnity of their present ruinous condition. Nothing is taken away from them. Though in ruins, it is still noble and fails not to command the admiration awe and respect of every visitor. The remaining portions, however, are but sorry fragments of its once gigantic dimensions, imposing appearance and florid architecture. How completely the Scottish civilization of the Middle Ages was self-acquired, and how little it depended on the influence of England, is strikingly shown in the one fact that we must go more than 200 miles from the border and far across the wild Grampians to see once the most stately and the most beautifully decorated of all the ecclesiastical edifices of the country, a building which size and ornament are combined. Elgin Cathedral must have been, as its lovely and majestic fragments still indicate, quite unmatched. Ah, oh, perfect, Jenny. Wow, it's really sad that such a grand medieval building has been reduced to these ruins, but they are still some pretty awesome ruins. They really are. 
While most of the nave was destroyed when the tower collapsed on Easter Sunday in 1711, the walls that do remain stand at their original height and this gives us a surreal glimpse into the true grandeur of the cathedral's past. The huge empty window frames whisper to us the tales of magnificent stained glass windows and the perfectly kept lawn flows around seamlessly from the ancient graveyard outside the walls to the inside of the cathedral foundations. And if you really squint at it, Annie, it looks like the remaining cathedral walls are just massive gravestones. Who would want massive giant gravestones, Jenny? Ah, well, as we'll soon see, there are many enlightening, strange and terrifying tales swirling around the cathedral. And I'm sure at least one of the folk in them may deserve a 90-foot tall gravestone in the middle of Elgin. Well, let's go and dig up these giant tails and see if they deserve a gravestone of such a large size, Jenny. Woo! I'll get my shovel. <laughs> the construction of Elgin Cathedral began in the early 13th century and it was the centre of the Roman Catholic Church in the north of Scotland. But unfortunately, not 30 years after the construction was completed, a huge fire broke out and caused significant damage to the whole building. Whoop, somebody knocked over a candle. Well, we don't know the cause of the fire, so it could well have been a knocked over candle, Jenny. But do you know what they did? Uh, rebuilt it with less flammable materials. Nope, they rebuilt it even bigger and grander, Mm. which probably means that there were even more flammable materials inside. Okay, I think I see where this is going. If it's back up in flames, then yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because just over 100 years later, in 1390, the cathedral was destroyed by a massive fire again. Oh no. But this time it was not an accident, Jenny. It was a deliberate arson attack from Alexander Stuart, also known as the Wolf of Badenoch. Ow! Wow, that was that was pretty good, Annie. <laughs> I I feel like burning a cathedral down to the ground is quite a hard one to talk yourself out of when you you know when you're up at the pearly gates trying to talk your way into heaven. Oh yeah, they they don't look fondly on that, especially when they can still see the smoke coming up. Jenny, that's not to be laughed at. But he wouldn't have been up there alone, as it was burned down again in an attack just 12 years later, in 1402, by the Lord of the Isles. God, this cathedral is a fire hazard. No wonder it's called the Lantern of the North. Jenny! (laughs) I can see it burning for miles away! What? Someone's turned the lantern on again? (laughs) But after each burning, the cathedral rose from these hot ashes, more magnificent than it had previously been. Perhaps, surprisingly, it wasn't the fire that caused its final ruin. It was the reformation of the church. Well, you know, Martin Luther did come in pretty hot. (laughs) So the Scottish Reformation in the 1500s saw the Protestant church being imposed as the religion of the state. This replaces the Catholic church and the Catholic power. Mm. This means that the Protestant faith becomes the religion of the country. 
and it caused significant changes in Scottish society and culture. Was one of these changes mandatory fire extinguishers? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately not. However, I don't think that the Protestant church was as big a fan of candles as Mm. the Catholic church. So after the Reformation, perhaps a reduction of candles meant slightly fewer burning cathedrals. Well, would you look at that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the lantern's gone out. How am I ever going to find my way home now? (laughs) So after the Reformation, the cathedral was abandoned Mm -hmm. and slowly fell into disrepair. But it was not left to crumble naturally because I found this intriguing article from 1851 in the Elgin Courier. Disgrace followed desolation. On the 14th of February, 1588, an order was issued by the Privy Council under Regent Murray to take the lead off cathedral churches in Aberdeen and Elgin to be sold for the sustenation of men of war. It was assuredly hard times with the government when, in the words of a certain worthy, they were obliged to tail the cucks to uphold the sodgers. This disgraceful edict was punctually obeyed. Both Aberdeen and Elgin cathedrals were despoiled of the roof, and the lead, on the authority of Dr Johnston, was sold to the Dutch company for about a hundred pounds. But this unholy transaction was not destined to enrich either party. The ship with the cargo foundered on her way to Holland, and thus cupidity was outwitted, and the deep sea became the perpetual heir to the prize. So here we see that the lead roof was stripped off of the cathedral in order to support the king's army, along with the bells, and sold to a Dutch company. Only lead is an incredibly heavy metal, and the ship that was sent to transport it was never built to hold two cathedral roofs worth of lead. (laughs) I like that they made it halfway before the boat was like, nah, no, I'm done. This stuff weighs two literal boat tons full of lead and I am just one wee boat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've read a couple of different accounts and it seems like the boat didn't even make it that far. It was so overloaded with lead that it just sank right into the harbour. Well, that must have gone down like a lead boat with the king. <laughs> oh, Jenny, that joke went down like a lead boat with Annie. <laughs> so, like, technically very successfully? Because that <laughs> boat went down. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how Elgin Cathedral lost its roof and is now a ruin, but a spooky ruin. Ooh. Oh, there's so many ghosts coming up. I'm, I swear, they're, cu- they're coming. <laughs> the roof is haunted. It is said that if you go paddling... In the harbour, you'll get lead poisoning. (laughs) So I have a wee story to tell you, Jenny. When I was but a wee lass wandering barefoot over the sheep fields... This is terrifying, Annie. Stop. (laughs) I would come home and when I was... Tired out from running about on the the, the farm. <laughs> I'd get into my bed and my dad would tell me spooky stories. And I grew up in rural Nern, just 20 miles away from Elgin. 
So I knew Elgin really well and I knew the cathedral. And my dad would always tell me uh, tales of the wicked murdering aristocrat who burned the cathedral to the ground. Now, I've seen him called many different names, most of them quite nasty. <laughs> the Scottish Attila, the Scourge of God, and you may know him as Alexander Stuart, the Earl of Buchan, but most commonly he's called the Wolf of Badenoch. <gasps> Even the Perthshire Advertiser describes him as an atrocious ruffian. <laughs> And one of the bad men of history. Indeed. <laughs> but the wolf of Badenoch far predates the Perthshire advertiser. Never. You're talking about the third surviving son of King Robert II of Scotland. So we're going way back in time here, Annie. Way back to the mid-1300s. So essentially... Essentially, right? It sounds like a Game of Thrones episode. The Wolf of Baratheon, eh, Badenoch, was the son of King Robert II. However, his father was not a king when the wolf was born. His father was merely a Robert back then. Robert's uncle, David II, he was king and Robert was jealous. Robert was power hungry, so instead of spending his time burping his bairns, he built up strength and influence across all of Scotland. Ooh. But then... Upon the death of King David II, Robert ascended to the throne of Scotland, his dreams finally coming true. His son, the Wolf of Badenoch, became enthralled by the power too. He was a real alpha wolf. <laughs> the power of his father granted the wolf a great deal of wealth, land and influence, and he snatched at this hungrily, like a wild dog or a wolf, and tore it to shreds. Okay, Dad. Oh, I mean, Jenny. <laughs> I so... mean, I know the moustache is something, Annie, but come on. <laughs> what did the Wolf of Badenoch actually do? Well, he was a strong, imposing and ruthless man with big muscles shaped like croissants and probably an oily moustache. And he hired a bunch of Gaelic-speaking mercenaries, also called Catarans, to maintain his power in the north. He was notoriously volatile, violent and brutal in his reign. But his dad, who was king, just let him get away with it. So this really is a tale of how parents need to discipline their children so that fewer cathedrals burn to the ground. Okay, but why did the Wolf of Badenoch burn down Elgin Cathedral? Well, the wolf started a big quarrel with the church. Now, you might not know your history of the medieval period, Annie. Not like you, Jenny. Uh-uh, I'm uh, whew, so deep in it. But the two big powers at the time were the church and the monarchy. They are ruling everything, and they are about to feud so hard that it ends in ashes and despair. A feud, Jenny, between the church and the crown? Now, who would have seen that coming? It's very original. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alexander Burr, the Bishop of Murray, saw it coming. The Bishop of Murray was a pious man, and he stood by his beliefs. And he was not pleased when the wolf was named Lord of Badenoch because it gave him authority over a lot of land, including church lands. Now, when the wolf found himself in a case of disputed lands, he let his hired warriors wreak havoc on the area in question. He created turmoil and chaos, making the land worthless and undesirable to manage. It was basically a scorched earth policy. Mm -hmm. It was a violent and ruthless tactic, but it worked. 
so the Bishop of Murray paid the wolf to protect his lands. That is until 1390, when he turned to someone else for protection. However, being offended that he's not being paid for protection anymore was not the only reason that the Wolf of Badenoch and the Bishop of Murray weren't drinking buddies. The Wolf had a lovely wife named Euphemia. However, they had no bairns together. Euphemia was a countess in her own right, and through their marriage, the Wolf became possessor of vast lands in Ross. However, he deserted the childless Euphemia for his mistress, with whom he had a lot of children, but these children weren't legitimate in the eyes of the church. You see, in 1389, the Bishop of Murray told the wolf that he needed to go back to his wife, and the wolf of Badenoch did not like being told what to do by the bishop. He saw himself as a ferocious, powerful beast, not a pet puppy. Wolf? He lied to the Bishop of Murray, saying that yes, I'll return to my wife, but instead, he stayed with his mistress. His grudge against the Bishop of Murray began to fester and grow, and because of the Bishop's interference in looking after Euphemia's best interests, a vendetta was born. Now this all comes to head when the wolf's father, King Robert II, dies. Now the death of a monarch in a medieval kingdom creates great uncertainty, and all aristocrats suddenly start kind of power-grabbing and finding allyship and trying to destroy their enemies. Mm. And ruthless leaders like the Wolf of Badenoch are willing to try very risky tactics to build power and control land. And so the wolf used this turbulence caused by the death of his father to reign chaos over the Bishop of Murray through fury and fire. The Wolf of Badenoch gathered all of his nasty pals, his dreadful swords, and his ruthless mercenaries, and together... This fearless band of scoundrels set fire to the town of Forest and Plusgarden Abbey. They showed an unexpected violence, destroying everything in their path with no honour or mercy. Then they took a month off, let things settle down again, before they marched to Elgin, where they rained terror on the town like Vesuvius on Pompeii. They burned a hospital and the houses of the clergy, and finally they landed at Elgin Cathedral. They were described in the chronicles as wild, wicked, healand men, and they left Elgin as a wasteland, needing once again to be rebuilt. What a grim tale. Mm. However, this isn't actually the story that my dad told me, mm. because the Wolf of Badenoch was such an atrocious ruffian that his story transcended from evil deeds against his enemies right into mythology. Yes, old wolfskin burned down a town, was never going to have an easy journey out of this world. The story goes that as he lay on his deathbed in Ruthven Castle, a tall, mysterious man, dressed in all black, visited his bedside and suggested a game of chess. Now, the wolf was as ferocious a chess player as he was a warlord and would never turn down a challenge. The game raged on and with each passing hour the storm outside grew wilder and wilder. Eventually, in the wee hours of the morning, the visitor called Check, and a moment later, with a boom of thunder so loud it shook the whole tower, he called Checkmate. The storm raged harder than ever. Rain, hail, winds, thunder, lightning all tore around the castle throughout the night until finally the sun rose and the storm calmed and the wolf of Badenoch 
was dead. Not only was the wolf dead, but all his men were killed too, charred as if hit by lightning, and the nails in all their boots had been removed, because the devil was looking to put up some photo frames around his lair, you know, brighten the place up a bit. Okay, so... <laughs> I feel like the devil um, appears quite a lot in Scottish mythology. Ah, so he was playing chess with the devil. Mm. I'm not sure my dad told me the bit about the photo frames, Jenny, but... Oh, no, Devil was big on interior design. He stayed very up-to-date with it, so, you know, he'd go from minimal to, like, moving into 70s style, back to minimal. How did he have photographs in the medieval period? It's the Devil, Annie. Do I really need to say any more? No, Jenny, you don't. Mm. Devil or not, the wolf was certainly dead, and his body was taken to Dunkeld Cathedral. He was so hated by all of the clergy that they refused to let his coffin pass through the front of the church, and so it was taken in the back door. Mm. You can still visit his tomb, which has a big carving of him in stone on top of it. And there's also a statue of the Wolf of Badenoch in Elgin. Um, but I found this beautiful poem from the Elgin Curvent in 1850, which lamented Elgin Cathedral. Proud ruins hail, August of ancient time, Great in thy fall, and awfully sublime. Such doom we mourn, the reverend decay, Cathedral Elgin, times of despotic sway. For mind immortal in its eye must see Immortal ruins and eternity. By the 1700s, Elgin Cathedral was in such a state of ruin that people were beginning to visit as tourists, marvelling at this 200-year-old wreckage. But it wasn't just tourists that it attracted. It also had the odd squatter or two, and none more desolate and desperate than that of Marjorie Gilzine. She was born in Draney, just north of Elgin, and fell hopelessly in love with Andrew Anderson, a soldier stationed in Elgin. When the time came for his regiment to move, Marjorie decided to follow him on his journeys. And while it's not known exactly where they went, they very well may have travelled as far as Gibraltar. However, a year or so after she left, Marjorie returned to Elgin, without Andrew, but with his bairn. But what happened to Andrew? We're not sure. It's uh, it's possible he died in battle. It's also possible that he abandoned her or maybe she abandoned him. There's a lot of ballads about women in this precise predicament mm-hmm. of following a soldier and then either the soldier giving up or the woman giving up. Interesting. So we're not entirely sure which way it was. But what we do know is that she had no other option but to return home and had walked hundreds of miles to get there. Only... Her parents weren't at all pleased to see their daughter returning home with an illegitimate child. And so they did what any cold-hearted parent of the time would do and kicked her out. That's just so horrible and so unnecessary. Well, it might not have been like that, Annie. They might also have been dead upon her return. Um, but I'm not sure which version is worse. <laughs> so, so penniless and desperate, Marjorie found shelter in the chapter house of the crumbling Elgin Cathedral the only part which still had a roof remaining. Here, she bathed her son, also named Andrew, in the stone basin and began living in the ruins of the ancient building. 
wow, she lived amongst the ruins of the cathedral in the middle of the market town. And she raised her son there. For years, Marjorie spun wool and did other odd jobs for the locals of Elgin, as well as just relying on their charity. Eventually, some friends took her in. But her son did spend the better part of his childhood growing up amongst the gravestones, which adds a whole new terrifying dimension to imaginary friends. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened to this boy and his imaginary friends? Well, he was a very smart child and so was able to become a pauper loon at the local school. Okay, a pauper loon. So in Scots, I think this is meant quite affectionately just to refer to a poor lad. Okay. It means he would have been given an education in exchange for working at the school. Yes, so he worked his way through school and fell into the army sometime after he left. And how does one fall into the army, Jenny? That's how they used to recruit people, Annie. They just had big holes covered in thin sheets sprinkled with leaves and you step in one of them, boom. Next thing you know, you've landed in phase one basic training. (laughs) Not to step in big holes. This is not how we've ever recruited for the army. No, he was uh, he was working for a tailor at the time, and chance had it that he was delivering a jacket to a soldier who was about to leave for India. The soldier offered to take him along if he wanted, and Andrew said yes. So away he went, following in his father's bootsteps. He never spoke to nor saw his mother again. That's really sad. It is but they didn't have WhatsApp back then. But in the army, he did really well. He worked his way up the ranks and became a general. Um, He joined the East India Company and amassed a great wealth. But he never forgot about his harsh childhood in the ruins of the cathedral. I don't think anyone who grew up in the ruins of the cathedral (laughs) would quickly forget it. That's very true. He died in London, but he left his £70,000 fortune, which is almost £8 million in today's money, to create a new school and care home in Elgin, which is still in operation today and within sight of where he grew up. I feel like this is the first person we've spoken about who deserves a giant tombstone in the graveyard. Mm, no. <laughs> no? So, oh, no. Okay, all right, here we Big go. no. <laughs> On the surface of things, this does look like a rags to riches story that ends in the provision of care for the young and the elderly. But actually... Let's look a little bit closer and we see that Anderson made his money from the East India Trading Company, which was a massive part of Britain's colonisation of India. It traded slaves and monopolised the global market for just about everything at the time. The East India Company essentially exploited the whole world for the benefit of Britain and that's what Britain is built on. Mm. So the riches that Anderson made were from the labour of slaves and the oppression of whole nations. He has a statue in Elgin and he's still an incredibly celebrated figure, which in itself makes me feel a bit queasy. In my head, perhaps his civic gifts to Elgin were a way to try and ease his guilty conscience because of the way he'd treated people across the globe. Mm. Maybe he was also thinking about that awkward conversation at the pearly gates. Mm -hmm. There's Mm. a long queue in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) But the wolf of Badenoch also has a statue in Elgin. So perhaps Scotland needs a wee think about making memorials for really horrible men who have caused horrific destruction. And if you go and read the TripAdvisor reviews for the wolf of Badenoch statue in Elgin, they are quite funny. 
but yes, I agree. Uh, that does seem fair, Annie. Maybe we won't dedicate the 90-foot gravestone to this man either. On a spookier note, though, it is said that if you pass by the ruins of the cathedral on a clear moonlit night, you can still see the lonesome ghost of Marjorie Anderson moving soundlessly between the gravestones, cradling a bairn in her arms. She's the real hero of this, because, you know, a single mother raising a child in the ruin of a cathedral, mm. you know, that's a hard life. By the mid-1800s, the people of Elgin realised that the beautiful ruin of their cathedral really needed some conservation, but the council only wanted to pay for the structure to be stabilised so it didn't fall down on anyone. When it came to the actual conservation, well, they just got in a man named John Shanks from down the road. <laughs> so here's what was said about John Shanks in A History of Marion Nairn. A certain John Shanks, an idle, gossiping creature, who had been a Druthy cobbler in the high street of Elgin. So, Druthy is a Scots word used to mean either dry, wet or alcoholic. So, a Druthy cobbler, I'm thinking, is an alcoholic shoemaker. Or just a really sweaty shoemaker. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of the only definition that makes sense, but for some reason I've seen Druthy cobbler as a kind of name that goes with the profession. Okay. Well, this alcoholic shoemaker was appointed to the keepership of the cathedral. He was a thin, lank, spider-like being with a quiet, earnest enthusiasm in his manner who dressed habitually in a red Kilmarnock bonnet, short breeches and rigging fur stockings. A sort of old mortality whose delight it was to labour amongst ruins and tombs. Sounds just like you, Jenny. Honestly, I'm connecting a lot. It's the shorts and long socks. <laughs> no sooner was he appointed than he set vigorously to work to clear away the accumulated rubbish. With his own hands, he removed nearly 3,000 barrowfuls of litter. Wow! The Murrayshire Farmers Club, hearing of the good work he was doing, sent him down some horses and carts to carry away the sweepings. When he had finished his labours, he had not only made the place tidy and approachable, but had laid bare the traces of its original plan, the elevation at the high altar, the stairs at the western gate, and discovered many tombs and ornaments buried deep within the waste. Ah, it seems like John was almost obsessed with the cathedral and its conservation, despite the fact that he was in no way a trained conservator. Yeah, that did not stop him cracking on. <laughs> he single-handedly cleared... 500 years worth of rubble, rubbish, ruins, or, as some may call it, archaeology. <laughs> and as, a, as an archivist, this story genuinely pains me, as although John had nothing but good intention, he was completely unaware of the worth or importance of a lot of the things that he believed to be useless ruins. Ah, he was almost too efficient. <laughs> Yep, so it's thought that he accidentally disposed of much of the original architecture and incredible stone carvings. Oh, John. And it's really quite sad. It's, it's the tragedy of the cathedral that as you walk through the town of Elgin, you can spot 
quite a lot of buildings that are built with little remnants of the cathedral <laughs> here and there. A little gargoyle here. <laughs> altar over there. A little memory, a little shadow of the cathedral when it was full lantern. What's on fire? <laughs> <laughs> but poor John. Annie, his heart was in the right place and no other spider-like being contributed so much to the cathedral's preservation. Shall we dedicate the 90-foot cathedral gravestone to him? Well... (laughs) (laughs) You're still for Marjorie Anderson, aren't you? I'm still voting for Marjorie Anderson. I think the cathedral should be dedicated to her. Oh, well. Poor John Shanks, the truthy cobbler. But I did find a lovely poem about a druthy fellow from the Fife Herald in 1863, written by a rather mystical Will-o'-the-Wisp. So I thought this was a good chance to explore this little piece of Scots history. The alehouse, John Druthy, fae morning till evening. I wonder often you like to be seen. Summer and winter, it's all your delight. Sit with your croonies and drink through the night. <laughs> Ye clatter the gill stoop, ye roar and ye rant, gainst this ain and that ain, be he sinner or saunt, while the o' oh, your neighbours you loudly assail, but ye see nay your arm as ye guzzle the ale. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even see your arm as you're drinking your beer. We all know a John Druthy. We <laughs> Yes, Jenny, we do. Thank you so much for that. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in and coming on this strange little journey with us. Now, if you enjoy this podcast and would like to support us as we create more episodes for you, whilst also accessing some bonus content, then you can become a patron of the show. If you'd like to help out, then you can go to www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland. Or you can also support us by giving us a like and share on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or just telling all your friends about us. Cheeky review. I love a cheeky review. We've actually had some of the best reviews mm. over the past summer. It's It's been very positive for me. <laughs> and thank you to our expanding Patreon family mm-hmm. who have been so kind and generous with us. Um, since our last season, we have now welcomed Morgana Graham. Ceylon, Megan, Tessa, Margaret and Peter, Taylor, Anya, Paige, Tim Ward, Bella, Robert, Petra, Donnelly, Cheryl, Charis and Boris, and Eugene. A personal thanks to all of you. It's so wonderful that you've joined us on this strange little Stories of Scotland (laughs) ship as we sail the seas of Scottish history. And thank you all so much for listening to Stories of Scotland even that you've taken the time to listen to us warms our little hearts. Slangeva. Just like Elgin Cathedral warmed the north while it was on fire. Slangeva. <laughs> <laughs>